Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. From the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I continue to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas. On this, the second Sunday in Christmas, our attentions are focused upon the great atrocities of Herod, the martyrdom of the Holy Innocents, and the fleeing of the Holy Family to safety in Egypt. Herod is enraged, not only because he has been fooled by the Magi, but because a new king has been born in Bethlehem. Herod, a mere puppet king of the client state of Israel, is jealous for his kingdom, such as it is. And in a rage, he sends out his officers to kill every baby boy in Bethlehem. In fact, this is the first time that I've ever heard these two verses read out loud on a Sunday, because according to the previous lectionary, it just was cut out. The slaughter of the innocents was not even present in our old Episcopal Church lectionary. I'm sure that surprises precisely none of you. These child martyrs give witness, even though they are not confessors of the faith, to the kingship of Jesus Christ. The slaughter of innocents shows the absolute depths of human sin, hatred, and malevolence, the depths of anger. Hear what the Venerable Bede says of this. In this death of the children, the precious death of all Christ's martyrs is figured. That they were infants signifies that by the merit of humility alone can we come to the glory of martyrdom. That they were slain in Bethlehem and the coast thereof. That they were slain while Christ escaped signifies that the martyrs may be destroyed by the wicked, but that Christ cannot be taken from them. And such is the case for every martyr ever since. Christ cannot be taken from them. Herod should have shown fear and awe before this newborn king. Instead, in his anger, he descends into the chaos of a soul driven wild by demons. He rages, as St. John Chrysostom puts it, against nature herself. In his anger against the wise men who had mocked him, he vents upon children that had done no wrong. We do well to remember that it is always pride and anger and lust that conspire together to drag us into hell. Pride is the act of treason, anger the passion that fuels it, and lust the endless desire for self-gratification over love. In the depths of human sin, in pride and anger and lust, we will always find justifications for the brutality of violence even against those who have done no wrong. Consider today's mass shooter. He is grandiose. He is angry that no one outside his own family recognizes how magnificent he is. And the result is loneliness, anxiety, depression. And when a man believes that he is not appreciated as much as he could be or seen to be as powerful as he wants to be or attractive, it is a dangerous combination, a deadly combination. At the root of the atrocities our society commits every single day against the unborn, we cannot forget that at the root of this is the same pride, grandiosity, anger, and lust. I would even say most of it by men who selfishly conceived of a life of sex without babies. And when the inevitable happened, they were certainly not going to take responsibility. They were going to, in a word, abdicate. 
abdicate the very vocation which the Lord had put in front of them. What is abortion but a murderous abdication of the natural vocation of those who have been used by God to bring forth life? And I want you to see this today. Herod has abdicated his throne, only he doesn't know it. Just as every murderous ruler abdicates their position. Just as every boaster becomes one who is ultimately torn down. We should not miss the obvious thing that Matthew wants us to see. And I can't believe I never saw this until recently. Herod is actually playing the part here in this retelling of the Old Testament according to what actually happened in the New. Herod is playing the part of Pharaoh, one who consults with magicians, thinking that that's what they are, and lashes out in anger, whose heart is hardened and who slaughters the innocent. This is a biting criticism, especially of the Herodian dynasty as they remained right up to the end of the first century. Matthew is setting up, if we're paying attention, a clash of kings. And it isn't just about Jesus Christ of Nazareth versus Herod the Great or Herod Antipas or Archelaus. It is about a clash as well between Herod and Joseph. Matthew wants us to see that you have this incredible story in front of you a usurper, an Arab convert to Judaism who cobbled together a kingdom from practically nothing versus a disinherited king of Israel, the very, heir, the very heir of David, a humble and righteous man who never says a single word in Holy Scripture. He is, of course, playing the role of Joseph who goes down into Egypt to preserve the heirs of Abraham, to provide bread for the people of God. You'll remember that when the Old Testament Joseph is considering the events which led him to be taken to Egypt, he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This is a powerful action. And I want to draw your attention to it. Rabbi Jonathan, Jonathan Sachs, who is the uh, chief rabbi uh, in, in the UK, and if you have not followed his blog, you're in for a real treat. It's one of the most wonderful exegesis of the Old Testament I've ever seen. But he's spoken of Joseph's ability to reinterpret the past in the light of God's providence. He says this when he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He looks at the past and doesn't see just one tragedy after another. He sees God's hand in it. And you could say the same of this new Joseph. Whatever had gone wrong in the line of David, whatever had gone wrong to get him to this place, the end result was a humble father raising a humble son. The father more royal than any living human being and the son more royal than anyone ever. This is what Matthew sets up from the very beginning of his Gospel, laying out the genealogy of Jesus not through Mary but through Joseph. And you might say, Jesus is not Joseph's natural child, and that's true. But it's also true that in the infinite wisdom of God, the Lord is not born to a single mother, but to a married couple. Believe it or not, so insistent have the majority of Christians been through the ages that the marriage of, jo of Joseph and Mary was never consummated in the natural way that many have wondered if they were really married at all. Christians from Ambrose and Augustine all the way to Thomas Cranmer, Martin Luther, and John Wesley have professed a belief in the perpetual virginity of Mary. And you may disagree, and I want to make sure that you know that I'm not denigrating you and I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just simply saying that you're in the minority. You're a newcomer to a very long conversation. And all you really have going on is speculation. 
Most Christians through the centuries thought it unthinkable that Mary, the very Ark of the New Covenant, could be anything but a virgin. And I want you to see why they say this. Whatever you may think of it, it is absolutely the case that Jesus Christ is the offspring of a married couple. Keeping in mind that offspring has uh, half to do with the natural process and half to do with the process of multiplying yourself and your life in your children. Um, some of the rabbinic authors have, have noticed this in the Old Testament, that to be fruitful and multiply means two separate actions, but two sides of a very important coin. One meaning natural reproduction, the other meaning multiplication of your life down through the centuries. Hear what St. Augustine says about this. He says, all the nuptial blessings are fulfilled in the marriage of Christ's parents, offspring, faith, and sacrament. The offspring we know to have been the Lord Jesus. Faith, for there was no adultery. Sacrament, since there was no divorce. And then, of course, he holds his opinion. Carnal intercourse alone, there was none. So what I want you to do today is to turn your attention to Joseph, just for a moment, this consummate servant. Bernard of Clairvaux said once, there is no doubt that this Joseph to whom the mother of the Savior was espoused was a man good and preeminently faithful. A prudent and faithful servant he was. I say whom the Lord placed beside Mary to, to be her protector, the nourisher of his human body, and the single most trusty assistant on earth in his great design. In Joseph, we see the very words of Jesus, the first shall be last and the last first. And also, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Do we not see in Joseph a very man who loves his wife as Christ loved the church and offered himself up for her that she may be holy and blameless? Where do you think that Jesus learned this virtue? I was talking with some men over the, of the parish over beer on a Sunday night recently, as is our custom, and if you've never been, you're invited. And this question was raised, wouldn't it have been better if Jesus had been raised and born into a dysfunctional family with a terrible father? Wouldn't that have made him a more, uh, a more patient person? Wouldn't that have been better for his character? And we all agreed, no, no way. This is not what God wanted. Where do you think all of this love and obedience and patience was learned? We must learn to think as Christians. The obedience, indeed the whole character of the Lord, was not automatic. We don't sort of believe that He had no human will that didn't need to be taught anything, that didn't need to learn anything. He had to learn to be obedient, as Paul puts it, through what he suffered. And through much of the Lord's, and through much of the Lord's life, Joseph was there to teach him to shepherd his soul. And that is a magnificent thought. We see not only the humility of the Son, but the desire of a heavenly Father who has not cast us aside. Joseph is trusted for this task. Joseph is the one who was warned in a dream. It isn't Mary, as if she would have to carry this message to her husband, as if it's some sort of 1990s sitcom in which the husband is some kind of bumbling idiot and the mother knows best. No. If anyone was going to love and serve his family through a difficult journey and several years in exile, Joseph had to be that man. He had to take that responsibility. No doubt the temptations to anger and lust and the rest were high. Can you even imagine this for a second? Being a disinherited king, 
And listen, I believe that Joseph knew this about himself. Can you imagine having to put up with the likes of Herod running your family off into exile in Egypt? Can you imagine how, how much humility it would take to be warned in a dream and now think, what did I ever do to be treated so disrespectfully? Joseph is silent. Even when he resolves to put Mary away and divorce her, he desires to do so quietly so as not to dishonor her. But look what happens. The angel warns him against his fears about marrying her. And Matthew tells us he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Consider for a moment what it would have been like to go into Bethlehem, the city of your direct ancestor David, and have no room in the inn. I must tell you, I would not have been silent. I'd have dressed that innkeeper down. Do you not know who I am? I mean, imagine this. Imagine if Waco had a king, you know, and he got disinherited down the line, and he shows up at the Hilton and wants a room, and they say, no, you can't have a room. And he says, are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? Joseph says no such thing. I say this to encourage you who are fathers or those who aspire to be. There is so much temptation to be captive to utter anger, to feel that we will never be satisfied by the life of our families, or simply satisfied to be a husband. I spent so much of my life trying to prove my worth, trying to show those who didn't want me my value, while rejecting the love of those who actually did want me, who actually did, want, who actually did love me. Pride can plague a father. He thinks he knows. He thinks that he can keep chaos and malevolence at bay. He thinks he can have a certain kind of life if he just does this and that. He even falls prey to the idea that he's entitled to it. And you may be wondering what to do about that. Maybe you're married to a guy like that. And if you're married, you are married to a guy like that. My brothers... I say this specifically to you this morning. Ask the Lord to make you a man like Joseph who honors and loves his wife, who lays down his life for her. Ask the Lord to give you obedience like Joseph's. Ask the Lord to make you a loving father to raise up your children to holiness and virtue, to offer your life and service to your family. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.